If you uh, brought your Bibles with you this morning, you can turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to continue in Peter. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Peter. Uh, if you didn't bring your Bibles, the passage is in your bulletin, uh, or you can find it on page 1016 of those blue Bibles, as you prefer. Uh, but just to give a little bit of context, since it's been a couple of weeks, and because it's helpful to do that and keep ourselves straight where we are in a particular letter, Peter is addressing here in this letter in general and in the section that we're in, the perennial question of suffering. And he's not just uh, talking about suffering in general, but especially the suffering that we experience or can experience as the people of God when we're living in this world and we're trying to follow after God, we're trying to do that which is good, but it turns out everybody doesn't appreciate that in this world. And you can get uh, all kinds of grief for trying to do that which is good. And so Peter is giving to his original audience and to us as well this instruction that was obviously relevant when he wrote it then and continues to be just such a relevant book as we try to process our lives in this world. And he's showing us in this letter uh, kind of two things, the two things that you would expect. He's, he's looking at the why of suffering, but he's also then looking at the what do you do as a result of this? What, what do you do about your own life in terms of the suffering that exists in this world? And he's been uh, working through those themes. And the way that we have seen him do this is to kind of weave back and forth between two ideas. On the one hand, on the one side, he will instruct us. He'll instruct us in how we are to think. He'll instruct us in what we are to do, what we are to say, or what we are to not say. So he instructs us, but as soon as he instructs us, he then moves to the other side and he grounds or he roots the instructions that he's just given to us in the history of the people of God, particularly in the Old Testament, but then more particularly in the life of Jesus himself. So whether you are a saint who was living in the time of Israel or whether you are living now as a member of the church, Peter's saying that the only way for us then or now to really process suffering and to understand what we are to do is to see it in light of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's what he did in the last section. So the last section that we looked at two weeks ago, we had had the exhortation that he gave to us, and then he pointed us to Christ. In particular, he pointed us to the suffering of Christ in chapter 3, verse 18, that Christ had suffered for us, and then he pointed us and took us through the exaltation of Christ with which that section ended. The resurrection of Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. This week, in the section that I'm going to read for us now, he pivots back. He pivots back and he's addressing us particularly. What are you to do? How are you to think about this? How are you to act in light of our lives, our struggle, our temptations, and our warfare. 
Uh, if you were in Sunday school this morning, uh, Jack was noting that there's a lot of what he was talking about in First Peter, and I said, yeah, you're going to get the same thing in exactly an hour. Jack didn't know how much these two uh, lessons overlapped. I did in preparation for it, and, uh, and we get to hear it again then from this portion of God's holy word. So hear this portion. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they may live in the spirit the way God does. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way you use it to shape our lives, to save our souls, and to help us as we try in this world to walk with you. And we pray that you would do so again with this very portion of it. Jesus, be our guide. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I trust that all of us understand, both from the experience that we have had in our own lives and from what we read in Scripture in not only this passage, but in all sorts of passages, that the Christian life is not a life that you live unopposed. The Christian life is not a life unopposed. It is, in fact, in many ways a life that is lived in opposition, a life that is lived in struggle. Now, today is Palm Sunday, and on Palm Sunday, the church remembers the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. We remember that moment when the people are laying down the branches and they're crying out with the hymn, with the song, with which we opened our worship this morning. And in one sense, you look at that and say, that's a beautiful moment of triumph, and that's why it's called or referred to as the triumphal entry. And yet, at the very same time, if we were to look at that story in detail, we'll see, or we would see, that the opposition was stirred, that everybody wasn't actually happy about this, and not everybody understood what was actually taking place. In fact, practically no one but Jesus understood actually what was taking place at that time. So the opposition was stirred, and we see the same idea of opposition in the passage that is before us today. There are two types of opposition. There are two categories that are brought up in this passage. Another one will come up later in chapter 5. But here, the opposition is twofold, and it is exactly what we saw in Sunday school this morning. In the first place, there is the opposition that is described in verse 2 of our human passions. Okay, the, the, the deep, awful desires 
that continue to lurk in our hearts, that simmer just below the surface, that actually are, are on the stove and ready to break out of our lives at any particular moment. That's, that's the first enemy, if you will, opposition of the human passage and then passions. And then in the second place, the other enemy that is described in this passage are those who stand opposed to the people of God. Those who malign you, is the word that uh, our translation of Scripture used right here, those who malign you because you won't do what they do. Misery loves company, sin loves company, and it would be wonderful if people looked at you when you didn't join in them and said, you're such a great person, tell me about your God, but they don't, they just hate it. They, they just turn against you because the darkness does not like the light. And, and just so we're clear in this passage, you note in verse 3 that Peter writes, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Here, it's important to define, or just we need to know what Gentiles means here. Peter has taken the idea of the covenant people of God, which used to be Israel in particular, and in this letter, he's opened up that covenant, and he's included people from the Gentiles who now believe in Jesus Christ. So the people who are the people of the covenants of God, of the promises of God, are both Jew and Gentile, who believe in Jesus Christ. Whereas now, Gentiles is not so much people of other races besides the Jews. It's anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. So that's what he means when he uses the phrase Gentiles here. Those who don't follow Christ, commonly called in other places of Scripture, the world. The world. So you've got two enemies in our text here, and you can think of the opposition just in the way that we talked about in Sunday school. You can talk about this as internal opposition, opposition to the will of God that flows out of my heart, out of your heart, and external opposition. People who don't like the things that you do and the things that you say and who malign you because of that. All of us know this. All of us. There's not a person in this room who hasn't experienced it. Certainly, there's no one in this room who hasn't experienced the internal, those human passions that are down deep inside of us and that come out all over, this pla- all over the place in our lives. We all know that. We have all experienced that. There's, there's no exceptions amongst us. And I suspect that most of us have likewise experienced the external opposition as well. Personally, I've seen it throughout my life. From, from the moment, from the, literally the day I became a believer in high school, that was there. It was there in high school. It was there in college. It was there in jobs that I took after that. Fortunately, people in my job now don't malign me for following after Christ um, or not doing the things that other people do. But it's always been there. It's been a very active part of my life that people call you all sorts of things for being a Christian, and they don't like what you're doing. So Peter is writing in light of that opposition. He's writing in light of those two enemies that are out there, and his exhortation to us in that situation is the focus of that, this section. And here's the heart of the exhortation. The heart of the exhortation is found right in verse 1 in these two words, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves. 
In light of these two things that are out there, these two enemies, you have got to be armed for this warfare. It's most definitely a a military terminology that is being used here, and it's a good translation for us. It means whatever you want to call it. Get your weapons. Strap on your sword. Draw your sword. Get ready for battle. And this is not the first time in this letter that that Peter has employed militaristic language uh, for us to, to understand what we're facing in this world. Earlier in the letter, uh, he, he said what is translated for us, prepare your minds, but it's really gird up the loins of your mind. And the imagery is tuck in all the things that are loose that need to be tucked in so that you are ready for the battle. And in a passage that's very similar to the one we're in now in uh, chapter 2, verse 11, he writes it this way, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, these human desires, these human passions, which wage war against your soul. We are in a fight. Peter says, arm yourselves. But let me say what I've said time and time again, and I will keep saying time and time again for the sake of clarity, that this is metaphorical language. It's metaphorical language. The the one who is instructing us in this passage is the very one who on the night of the betrayal of our Lord had a sword and who, with the others, kind of cries out at the moment when they come to arrest Jesus, shall we strike with the sword? And before he waits for the answer from his Lord, Peter does exactly that. Peter knows what it means to be armed. He knows what it means to use a sword when you have to use a sword. And he lops off the servant of the high priest's ear only to hear his Lord reply to him and say to him, put the sword back in its place. No more of this. No more of this, Peter. This is not the way it is going to take place. So, when we hear, arm yourselves. We're not talking about all things related to weaponry here, but we are at least saying that in the Word of God, we're not talking about going out to the gun store. Peter has a very different weapon in view when he instructs us to arm ourselves. So, the question becomes, okay, what's the armor? What is the armor with which we are to arm ourselves? Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, if you are in this church and you've gone to uh, children's Sunday school, or frankly, if you've gone to many churches and you've been in Sunday school, there's going to be a temptation right here to answer that question, what's the armor that you want us to arm ourselves with? There's a temptation to answer that question by thinking of the Apostle Paul and that great description that we find at the end of Ephesians 6 of the the spiritual weapons and the, the spiritual armor in which we are to clothe ourselves. And if you recall, it includes the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the, the temptation is to take that use of of this metaphor and apply that here. Arm yourselves, arm yourselves with the Spirit, with the Word of God. Now, first of all, that's a great metaphor, and it's a great way to uh, understand the necessity of being ready uh, and prepared for the fight that exists, and Paul uses it appropriately. But you can use 
even yourselves, even, even one author can use the same analogy, the same metaphor in different ways, and certainly Peter can use it a little bit different than Paul, and so Peter has a very different weapon in view in our passage and a very different angle than Paul when he's talking there in Ephesians chapter 6. So again, we come back to the question of what's the weapon? What are you arming yourselves with here? Well, I'll give you a little bit of a warning. It doesn't sound like much of a weapon. There's a lot of talk right now, of course, about weaponry, and this is not a stinger. It's not a javelin. It's not some kind of kamikaze drone. It's not some S-300 uh, surface-to-air missile defense system. It's not a T-72 tank that we can send into a battle. This weapon that Peter is talking about here is counterintuitive. And it sounds, initially, when you hear it, it sounds defeatist. The weapon with which we are to arm ourselves here in this text is the suffering of Jesus Christ. Arm yourselves with the suffering of Jesus Christ. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Think about suffering the way that Jesus thought about suffering. That's the weaponry. That's the weaponry that is in this passage. You've got the two enemies, right? The two enemies in opposition. You've got the human passions or those awful desires, and you've got the world in opposition, and you've got one weapon that is being described here. The one weapon of the suffering of Jesus Christ. Thinking about it the way he did. Having the kind of resolve with respect to suffering that Jesus had. Now, this is not a new idea. It's not a new idea in this letter. It's not even original to Peter to have this thought. We went back and we looked at verse 21 of chapter 2. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Right? Remember that powerful passage there. And Peter's saying, this, this is what you've got as the example that Jesus has set an example of suffering. Or the, the passage right before this one, for Christ also suffered once for sins. It's not a new idea. It is a central theme that Peter is applying here in a very specific way. We need to think like Jesus thought about suffering. Now, if we want to compare this to something in Paul that's perhaps a little bit more accessible and familiar to us, you could think about it with respect to Philippians chapter 2. And Philippians chapter 2, you remember in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul says, have this mind among yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this mind. Think this way because Jesus thought this way so that you can consider others more important than yourselves so that you can have brotherly affections and sympathy. Have the same mind of Jesus, the humility of Jesus. This is a similar idea that is here as well. Peter says, this is the mind, this is the resolve that you must arm yourselves with. 
Jesus did not view suffering in the flesh, in this life, to be something that was to be avoided at all costs. We've said this before, we say it again here. Suffering was not tangential to his ministry, was not peripheral to his ministry. Instead, the suffering that Jesus endured was absolutely essential, as was the resolve to suffer. The suffering was essential, and the resolve to suffer was essential as well. We would not have been saved without the suffering of Jesus. It is inescapable. It is the very way that we were saved, was through his suffering. And so Jesus basically then says in one breath, or at least in one continuous thought, I must suffer. That's what I call the title of the the sermon today. The Son of God must suffer. That's what Jesus is saying. There is a divine imperative that I am embracing in my life, and the divine imperative is that the Son of Man has to suffer. And I'm taking that ideology, I'm taking that mindset upon myself, says our Lord. I must suffer, and here's the continuous thought, and therefore he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem was the place where he had to suffer. He had to go to Jerusalem to suffer. It takes the setting of his face. It takes this resolve to say, I am going to walk into the place of suffering. And so here's the irony. The triumph of the triumphal entry is not, in fact, the cheering of the crowds. The triumph of the triumphal entry is the Son of Man has embraced the call of God upon his life, and he comes in humility, riding on a donkey, saying, I am here to do the will of God, and the will of God that I suffer. That's why I'm in this place. That's the triumph of a man submitting himself to the very will of God. And as we've said before in this sermon series, and as you might remember, the minute that that comes out of Jesus' mouth, the minute he says, the Son of Man must suffer, he must die, we know Peter's reaction to that. No way. No way. That cannot happen to you. There's no way that this can take place in your life. Peter rebukes Jesus for thinking that way about himself because it seems to Peter nonsensical. It seems to Peter nonsensical that you would be the king of kings and the lord of lords and you would be saying, I'm going into Jerusalem to suffer. What seems much more logical to Peter is get out the swords, call those 12 legion of angels, let's take Jerusalem. The hill is there, it's ready to be taken, you've got the legions, we've got a few swords here, we'll find a few more. Let's go in and take it. And Jesus says, I have to go in. And suffer because Jesus knew what Peter didn't. Peter thought that suffering was outside the will of God, that it couldn't be the possible plan of God. And Jesus knew no, 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 it's inside the will of God. 
Peter saw suffering as a shameful thing, and it's going to have only a shameful end or, or no good end at all, whereas Peter saw the suffering itself indeed as a shameful thing. But Jesus saw the honor in it as well, and the honor in it was of a man saying yes to the will of God, contrary to his own will, contrary to his own passions that might say, I would like things to be at rest and at peace. And Jesus sees that it would yield glory. It would be shameful, but it would yield glory. It wasn't suffering for suffering's sake. It was, as we saw two weeks ago, purposeful suffering. Purposeful suffering. Do you remember the passage in Hebrews? I've talked about it with somebody recently. The passage in Hebrews that says, he learned obedience by the things he suffered. He learned obedience by the things he suffered. The things that he suffered in his life prepared the man Christ Jesus to enter into Jerusalem to say yes to the final aspects of suffering and the final shame of the cross. It was purposeful suffering, and it was suffering that was intended to and accomplished, as it says up in chapter 3, verse 18, bring us to God. He suffered to bring us to God. And its end wasn't humiliation. Its end was exaltation. Jesus didn't tell the disciples, hey, I'm going down to Jerusalem where I must suffer and I must die. And bada bing, that's the end of the story. I suffer and die in Jerusalem. Won't it be great that someone suffered? That's not the end of the story. It doesn't end on the cross. It doesn't end in the tomb. Jesus told them this. I go to Jerusalem to suffer and to be killed, and to be raised again on the third day. And then Jesus turns and says to them, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me in this. Peter is essentially saying to us in this passage that exact same message. Take up your cross of suffering and follow me. Think about the suffering the way I think about the suffering. Be resolved to the suffering the way I am resolved to the suffering. Recognize that the suffering brings a glory that doesn't come in this life. It comes in the life that is to come. That's where the glory comes. This life is the veil of tears. And Jesus says, you have to think that way. If you get that mixed up, if you think this is the life where everything's good and everything's happy and nothing bad happens to Christians or most of the time, you've got it mixed up. Take up your cross and follow after me. Peter says, arm yourselves with that way of thinking, that kind of resolve. Now, to be sure, there is an essential uniqueness to what Jesus suffered. His suffering was the suffering of the only one who was truly innocent, and it saved us, and it was for us. But the pattern and the blueprint of that life is our pattern and our blueprint as well. Okay, so there you go. That's the armor. Try it on for a moment. Try that on for a moment. In my life, in my service to my Savior and King Jesus I must endure suffering as his good soldier. I must die 
I might even literally physically die and then be raised up in Jesus, to Jesus, with Jesus, in glory forever. Can you embrace that resolve to suffer as a weapon? It's not masochistic. This is not masochism that we're talking about here. What we're talking about is actually liberty. It's liberty. There's a freedom that is here in this. And and now we can track, and we can track rather, frankly, quickly and briefly through the rest of this passage to make sense of how Peter then applies this. Let me just read it in two or three sections here quickly for us and explain. For whoever has suffered in the flesh, and this is continuing from verse 1, has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Peter is talking about things that are extreme there, obviously, but all of the things that lead up to them as well. Peter, in those verses that I just read for us, he's talking about the internal opposition, the internal war between the human passions that can govern our will and the will of God. You see them set right next to each other there in verse 2. No longer for human passions, but instead for the will of God. Those are the two things that are in conflict with one another inside of us, the will of God and the human passions that are there. And then, of course, those human passions or the way they can be worked out are all cataloged there in verse 3. Those are all, if we were to take a lot of time and look at them, those are all corruptions. They're abominations of good things that God has given to us in this world. The good things of food and of drink, uh, of, of sexuality as his gift, of worship as his gift. But these are all the ways that those things can go wrong, can be corrupted by our indwelling original sins. Our heart and our minds, our wills, our bodies, when left on their own, corrupt even these good gifts from God, and we become enslaved to the very things that God has given to us as gifts. But when our mindset is toward suffering and death and unto life in Jesus, then there's a shift. There's a shift that is taking place inside of us from doing what we want to do, doing what the human passions would lead us to do, and then doing what is the will of God. Now, when we talk about doing what is the will of God, we're talking about following after what has God has revealed to us. That's why I had us read the Ten Commandments earlier in the service. And it's also why I had us read those sections from the Heidelberg Catechism to say, are you talking about doing this perfectly? We'll come back to that phrase in verse 1 that I know is in your, in your mind right now as well. Are you talking about doing this perfectly, following after the will of God perfectly? Because in my own life, I still see a struggle with these human passions. The answer is no, we're not talking about it perfectly. We're not talking about right now doing it perfectly, but we are talking about doing it earnestly. We are talking about really striving after these things, after living according to 
the will of God. That's what we saw in those confessions. It's at work within us now. Now, this this phrase in verse 1, verse 1 says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. You shouldn't understand that as some kind of a statement of perfection unless you want to apply it to Jesus. But instead, it's a statement like unto Paul. You could turn to Romans chapter 6 and see this same idea expressed here. That, that when you have turned to the will of God, when you have accepted upon yourself suffering and death, the suffering and death in the first place in Jesus Christ, and then our suffering and death in him and with him, then those human passions no longer are in the driver's seat. They're no longer the ones to which we are enslaved. Instead, we're enslaved to the lordship of Jesus Christ to the will of God. But, but here's the thing. The, 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 the practices of verse 3 that are then described there, characteristic of an old life, at least pay me to some extent for those who are now believers, but the present life for non-believers yields this external opposition that we see in verse 4. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. People want you to be with them in this. They want you to do the same thing. And you see it over and over again in Scripture that they're saying, come along. Come along. Let's do this. It'll be okay. It'll be fun. Do what you want to do. We're doing what we want to do. You do what you want to do with us. Join us in these things. Celebrate these things with us. They want us to be a part of these things with them. And when you're not, when you're not, don't be surprised. They're going to malign you. They're not going to like the fact that you don't agree with them. They're not going to like the fact that you don't want to think the way they think or do the things that they do or practice the things that they practice in which they are engaged. But if we've accepted the mindset of Christ to endure suffering even unto death, then then what you've done in the face of that maligning is you've kind of taken the teeth out of it. You've taken the teeth out of it. You've taken the stinger out of the maligning. Now, uh, I was talking to uh, Danny and Lauren about this idea and about the sermon, and the minute I started talking about this part, both of them, uh, Danny and Danny's my daughter, uh, started quoting from a French theologian that I'd never heard of, uh, but apparently was a favorite of Elizabeth Elliot, and this was the quote, the more you accept daily crosses as daily bread in peace and simplicity, the less they will injure you or injure your frail, delicate health. But forebodings and frettings would soon kill you. The more you accept daily crosses as daily bread in peace and simplicity, the less they will injure your frail, delicate health. Because we have embraced an arc to our story in alignment with the arc of Christ's story, namely 
that there is an internal perspective on the story. When I say embrace the arc of the story of Christ, his goes from the exalted position at the right hand of God to descent, or what we looked at two weeks ago, to his humiliation, his incarnation, his life of sorrow, and then his suffering, his death, his bearing all of our sins in the descent into hell, and his burial into the ground. And then the ark goes up from there of his exaltation, his resurrection, his ascension, his enthronement at the right hand of God, his coming again to judge the living and the dead. When you take that ark and lay that ark upon yourselves, there's a whole new perspective to this. There's a whole new perspective to people maligning you. It's what you expect. That's the part of the ark that you're in right now. You're in the stage of humiliation. You're not in the stage of exaltation right now. We're in the stage of humiliation. Present suffering or maligning even unto death isn't the end of the story. And then in verses 5 and 6, Peter kind of points beyond, right? Verse 5, but they, that is to say those who malign you, They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That's what we confess, right? We confess that in the Apostles' Creed, that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. So Peter says the story is only going to make sense then. It's not going to make sense then. And then verse 6, kind of in light of that, anticipates an an objection that Peter will actually deal with more in uh, the second letter. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This would be the opposition. Listen, you, talk, you Christians talk a lot about eternal life. You talk a lot about doing that which is good and God preserving your life and Jesus was resurrected. But all I see is that you, kind of like us, live your lives and you die and period, that's it. I don't see a resurrection. I don't see this judgment coming. That's the, that's the opposition that would be there. This story of yours, this arc that you're talking about from humiliation to exaltation doesn't seem to be playing out in this world. The response to it is, oh, yes, it is. You just can't see it. Because the gospel was preached to those who have died. The, the gospel was preached to those who have gone before you. And those who have received the gospel of Jesus Christ, though they may be dead in the flesh right now, they are in fact alive in the spirit before God who is in heaven, like God. They are alive unto God. Brothers and sisters, the battle in which we find ourselves is real. It's true. It exists. It is internal and it is external. And both that internal enemy and the external enemy are trying to entice you. They are trying to lure you. They are trying to say to you, come this way, follow after me. And Peter says into that, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves. You've got to be ready. Arm yourselves with the suffering of Jesus, with the mindset and the resolve of Jesus regarding suffering. He suffered to bring you to God. He left you an example to follow him in following the will of his Father. 
even into suffering, and unto glory. Let's pray. Lord, we pray. Uh, We know these enemies. They are familiar to us. Help each one of us to daily take up the armor that you have given to us, to recognize where we are in the story now, to have joy in you in the present, the resurrection life in our present lives, but likewise to recognize that suffering will come, that maligning will come. Lord, help us to die to those internal desires that we have that are so awful and live unto you, live unto righteousness. I pray this for your sake and in your name. Amen.